God is at work. Do you recognize that? And he is at work everywhere on this planet. And um, as we proceed into this series that we're going to be in, the last time we studied things related to the kingdom of God, we, we primarily talked about what it looked like to be kingdom citizens. If you have any desire, you can go back and find that series. I think it's archived on the website, but you can listen to what we talked about then. But as I said last week, we we looked at how man views the issues of the kingdom, or a kingdom, how God views the issues of his kingdom. We looked at the teachings of Jesus on the kingdom and what it means to become a part of it. We looked at the impact of the kingdom of God, both on the physical world and the spiritual one. And we also sadly looked at the indifference that many people have toward the kingdom of God. Those who have no knowledge of the king or of his kingdom. And it doesn't take much for us to realize how many people there are around us that do not have any frame of reference for Jesus or his kingdom. It doesn't take very much time for us to realize how many people do have some knowledge of him and and possibly even the knowledge of his kingdom, and yet they refuse to submit. They are serving a different king, serving a different kingdom. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking into that void, if you will, in in those places that Jesus has called us to be. And we're going to examine what is possible when we engage those to whom he may send us. As a starting place for that, I, I want us to look into a very particular moment in time that's captured by Luke as Jesus was on the earth living life. And let's hear what he did. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now, as with all things, there's, there's context to statements that are made, right? There's, there's surrounding scriptures. Uh, there, there's what was going on. So the first thing I want us to do is kind of look at a little bit of a flyover of the previous chapter so we can get an idea of what had been going on leading up to this point. Luke 8. I'm not going to read all the verses. There's 56 of them. That's a lot. Uh, but, but we see a bunch of different things that are taking place leading up to this moment in Luke 9. There is a woman who is set free from evil spirits and healed. There's others that are in this same situation, and we find them supporting the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. We hear the parable of the sower taught to a large crowd. We hear the parable of the lamp and and hidden things and how they become evident being taught. We see a miracle of the calming of a sea by Jesus and his disciples being amazed. We we see the demoniac of the garrison set free, the pigs lost in that one. People overwhelmed and, and people frightened because of what took place. We see miracles of healing. A woman with an issue with her blood constantly hemorrhaging from her body. We see the miracle of Jairus' daughter 
thought dead, raised, parents amazed. Now, when you read the end of chapter 8 of Luke and you get into chapter 9 of Luke, there, there very well could have been a break in the action prior to what we just read at the beginning of chapter 8. But because there's no break that's mentioned, it's probably pretty likely that it was very close in proximity, at least in time. So these disciples, having just witnessed over days or weeks, whatever it took for chapter 8 to take place, they were witnessing things that could have only been done by one who had authority over those things. And it wasn't just the the physical world, it was the spiritual world as well. The the spirit world where where all kind of things are, are a mystery, it seems, in so many ways. But they were seeing the evidence of that, especially in the demoniac. And now, Jesus gives them power and authority over some of the very same things. And sending them out to do them. But there was also something else he was sending them to do. And it was actually tied to something he had told them earlier regarding his very purpose. This is in Luke 4. While the sun was setting, all those who had any uh, thing who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Now the word preach here is used specifically with a force that is proclaiming good news. That's the makeup of the word. The good news of the kingdom of God. What the disciples were later sent to do was summed up in the word proclaim, which can also mean simply preach with no real emphasis on the content, but but also mean to, to herald or to announce publicly. Simple enough, right? It seems to me that by the time we get to chapter 9 in Luke, though, from chapter 4, it's, it's pretty clear for the disciples that this is good news. They had seen a bunch of things that would give them indication that what Jesus was doing was good. And now they were being given the task to make it known. Now, to be sure, this was a a special moment in time. There are many special moments in time in Scripture where things are done that don't get done anywhere else. Things are said that really don't get said anywhere else. It was a special moment with special ability being given to this group of 12. A few verses later, we read in in verse 6, that departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel... What gospel? The good news of the kingdom of God and healing everywhere. And and notice they preached the gospel, the good news, used just like Jesus in, in the earlier verses, making sure that the people understood what the good news was and what it was all about in the same way Jesus had done. 
A few verses later, we read what happened when they got back in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. So there was this proclaiming that they were doing. There were healings that they were doing. There was probably dealing with demonic possession that they were doing. And now they give him the report. Then what's next? Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him and, and welcoming him. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm, I'm amazed at what I read in Scripture. And, and so I just kind of go over it, right? But, but this was an incredible series of events. And, and what an incredible time to be alive and in the presence of Jesus, walking with him in those moments of time. And, and sometimes it is. We, we read these things, we, we read them, we become so overwhelmed by them, what's going on, and we never pause to take a minute to take it in. Maybe even imagine ourselves for just a moment being in that position with Jesus. So I want you to pause for just a moment. You don't have to close your eyes. It doesn't have to be spooky. But I want you to consider maybe how you might have felt if you were one of the 12 in that moment. After experiencing everything we talked about in chapter 8, now Jesus comes to you with 11 others and says, I am giving you power I am giving you authority over, de- over demons and to heal. Go proclaim the good news of the gospel. Would you have just gone and done it? Would, would you have been a, a little overwhelmed maybe by a statement like that? Would you have asked for some time to think, can I... Can I can I think about this for a second and get back with you? You're talking about going and, and dealing with somebody like that guy that was demon-possessed where you threw the, all the demons into a herd of pigs and they went, me. Let, me. let me get back with you on that. Now here's what I know. I, I know that there are some people that believe that we are no different than the disciples whom Jesus chose personally while he walked on the earth. They believe that we have the same power and authority, that we can do the exact same things in the exact same way they did and that we should. Some of those folks really focus on the miraculous because that's super. And they want to see it. Whatever the motive of their heart, good or bad. I also know that there are some people who believe that we are very different than the disciples whom he chose personally while he walked on the earth, that we do not have the same power and authority as them, that we cannot do the exact same things in the exact same way they did, and that we should not try. Some of those folks really focus on the fact that they believe those things were for a specific time and purpose, and it's not the same today. And as a result of being on opposite sides of the power and authority issue, You have two groups that can argue. I got to tell you, in all honesty, I have argued 
over those same things. I found myself sometimes arguing on the side of this, and then I found myself sometimes arguing on the side of this. I found it to be pretty fruitless and, and truly not very satisfying in the long run. So rather than going that direction, I, I would rather look at something that is in the same passage, but it's really unrelated to that debate. I believe it was something given to those early disciples that still remains a mandate for today. Here it is, the simple statement. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. The reason I say it's still a mandate today to those who are his disciples, is is because of what is recorded of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And and before I read this, I want to state, I I do recognize that to understand biblical prophecy, which is in this particular passage that we're going to read in chapter 24, to understand the things that are recorded, there's a little bit of a, a need to recognize there, there are things that are in prophecy that are now, and then they will also be again. There are things that are in prophecy that are now and not yet characteristics. And sometimes they exist in the same passage. And, and this is one of those places. But I want you to listen to what Matthew records and Jesus says. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with his disciples. He came to a point out of the temple buildings to him and he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Pretty amazing statement. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will will these things happen? And what this is a problem when I'm reading a verse sometimes when I was younger, I learned it in the King James, and then they switched us over to NIV, and then I ended up using the NAS. My brain says words are there that are not on the page sometimes. So if I do that, you understand why. It's kind of weird. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will, be, when, <laughs> when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
Now, there's a lot in this passage that we could spend much time talking about, different components of biblical prophecy, but that's not really where I'd like us to focus today. I simply want you to see what is mentioned in the very last thing we read as to what will happen prior to the end coming. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, to be sure, what's, what's being said here is, is talking about a time that will long eclipse the original disciples that were listening to that moment in time. The people that would, would then speak that to the rest of the planet would have to be some people other than them. What, what this gives us is that the understanding that for these things Jesus is saying to happen, there, there would have to be disciples proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to all the people groups, to all the nations. And those 12 were not going to be able to do that in and of themselves. Fortunate for us, we have much history of the fact that this has been going on since they exited the planet. The original disciples died, and yet to this very day, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God is still being proclaimed. In fact, I was at a, a conference this week. I, I told you last week we were going, and, and it, was, it was to kind of get the understanding of how the Christian Missionary Alliance does missions and see what might be different from my understanding, what might be the same, how we can actively be a part of what's going on, and, and, and how, how do they fulfill this mandate. I want to give you just a couple of things that I heard that I thought were incredibly significant. In the CMA, they call everybody a worker. They don't call them, I mean, they have titles of pastor and teachers and all that stuff. But international workers are what we would always refer to as missionaries in my vernacular. But in the Christian Missionary Alliance, 80% of the international workers are going to places in the world, often where the gospel has never been preached. The good news of the kingdom of God has never been proclaimed. And the reason for this, as they were talking about it, is primarily tied to the initial vision that the founders of the CMA had, specifically one man. And that was to take the gospel to the places where it had never been heard. The hard places. The impossible places. The places that can only be reached by the grace of God. Now, I don't want you to think this is a commercial for Alliance Missions, because it's not. I'm not going to ask you to go on a missions trip today. Um, it, it's, not, it's not that kind of thing. But, but what I am going to ask you is to consider something pretty basic to what's being said, and that's to answer the question, what does it mean? to proclaim the kingdom of God. I mean, do you, do you just go out on a street corner and say, the kingdom of God, right? And that's, and that's it. I mean, is, is that proclaiming the kingdom of God? You, you may recognize that this sounds a, a lot different than some of the other things that, maybe not you, maybe just me, has heard as it relates to missions 
The reason I say that is because there are many things that have been tied to missions and to the followers of Jesus Christ that kind of imply that we must advance or we must expand or we must build the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of other words and phrases that are used. And, and though it may not be the intent, it often gives people the idea that God somehow needs help in order for his kingdom to be established. I would like to give you a newsflash. He does not. David was inspired by God, and he said it perfectly in Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Now, some might say that's a little presumptuous, especially coming from a guy that was representing a very particular nation, um, and, and, and that was the, the chosen of God to represent him to the world and, and all of those things. Um, how can he be king over those who are not Jews, Israelites? Paul made it clear when he said this in Acts 17, the God who made the world and all the things in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. It was and is God's to be ruler over all the earth, simply on the basis that he is the creator. But not everyone will agree. In fact, though John makes it clear in his writings that God's reign should be established and understood based on his creation of all things, it is not. John 1, he says... He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. The Lord's right to his kingship does not guarantee that all people will acknowledge him as their king. And, and this is primarily because there is a competing claim there is a, a competing claim that there is another kingdom that can exist. Claimed by the God of this world, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And, and because of disobedience, the, the whole world, 1 John 5, is, is corrupted and blinded to who the rightful ruler of all things truly is. And so a battle exists. Seemingly, words in Scripture give us an idea that there is a battle going on and war is being waged and military terms are being used and all of those things. The problem is it's not between two legitimate rulers making a claim to a throne, but between the legitimate king and this usurper between the true God and an imposter claiming divinity, between the holy ruler and a liar and thief. And, and though it should be clear, the intentions of both have, have become abundantly clear through the centuries. One offers light, the other darkness. One offers good, the other evil. One offers joy, the other despair. One offers freedom, the other bondage. One offers life, the other offers death. 
It's not always clear. Now, Jesus, if you read the scripture where he kind of faced off, he made it clear when he met Satan in the wilderness, exposed him as the fraud that he was. Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. Truth was, he was trying to give away something that he didn't own, that he didn't possess, that that wasn't his. It didn't belong to him. He had no authority at all to give it away because that's something that only God himself can do because he is the creator. This morning when we were in our prayer time, I I was thinking about this in one of the scriptures that we were praying, and, and I was thinking about all of the rights that people have because they create something, right? The guy that created the doorknob, I mean, he had the right to patent that, and, and then people would use it, and they would pay him for using the doorknob and all those things. And and, and mechanical things like that, chairs and and, and stands, we, we can understand that. But then you get off into some ideas of things that can be patented or that can be... Uh, uh, put in that same framework, like intellectual properties. Who was the first guy that had the idea? He should have a claim to that because he created that idea. And as, as I was walking through that in that time of prayer, I, I then thought, who has a thought without God giving it to them, allowing them to have it? Who creates anything without God already providing the materials that are there on the planet for them to do so? Does he have right? Yeah. He created all things. It is his. There there is no other. But not everyone can see what is going on. There's a blindness that exists. A deafness that exists because of the fall of man. And though mankind began as friends of God, that relationship is no longer automatic. And in fact, because we are separated by sin, we, as Paul put it, are enemies of God. Not wanting to receive the true king, because as John said, the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. In this statement, there comes a recognition that it's difficult, and it's said later, it's difficult to enter God's kingdom to submit to the king. And not because there's a list of rules that are impossible to follow, but because people do not want to turn from this false king, the the false kingdom, and repent of ways they have followed lies. Though they may want things to be different, they don't want to change. It's, it's very easy to look at that reality and think there is nothing that can be done. And yet, we just read a statement given by Jesus of what he said he came to do, his purpose, proclaim the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. As we studied last year, there there are many things about the kingdom that are said in the scripture. It's spoken of as many as 80 times, maybe. But in simplicity, to proclaim the kingdom of God revolves around just a few simple things. 
The kingdom of God is the reality that everything and everyone rightfully belong to God because he's their creator. Jesus has been made the king of God's kingdom, the ruler on earth and in heaven. There is blessing, joy, peace, hope for the future, a favor that comes from living under Christ's rule. But only those who submit and receive the king are kingdom citizens. When they do, these kingdom citizens then become ambassadors or representatives for his kingdom, one that is not of this world, not temporary, but forever. And though in Scripture and in the reality of those who are followers of Jesus, God's reign over his creation and over all the nations is a given, not everyone is aware of that truth. Listen to what we hear about this lack of awareness from people who became aware. Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that people everywhere should repent. There was and still is an obliviousness that people have. And, and this word ignorance there is a little bit different from other words that are used in, and translated ignorance. This one is actually the kind of thinking that leads to conduct. Actions that make it necessary for mankind to turn from their way of life in sin. Romans 10.3 For not knowing about God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. There was and is a lack of knowledge about who God is and what is truly right, leading people to do things their own way. Ephesians 4.18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, there was and is a lack of understanding, an, an ability to think rightly amongst a group of people. 1 Timothy 1, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. There was and is, again, that ignorance, and, and it leads to independent thinking, leading to, leading to an unwillingness to believe. 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. There was and is a clear pattern in Scripture Mankind lost through sin what it had with God from the very beginning, a relationship that was good. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Have you, have you ever taken time to, to think about what was lost? Have you ever stopped to think about that former relationship that was between Man and God. As short-lived as it was in Genesis. 
Have you ever considered the reality that the idea of reconciliation in the scripture is only possible through Jesus because there was a relationship in the beginning? When, when two people have conflict and there's a desire to reconcile the two people, they had to have had a relationship in the first place. There had to be something there, something of substance in order for that to even make a connection, or else you're just introducing two people with different opinions. Have you ever stopped to consider that though God will bring judgment against those who rebel against him, his desire in Jesus is to reclaim what is rightfully his? kind of causes us to think a little bit differently I don't know about you, but I I often find myself in a place where when when I'm seeing the world, I'm seeing the things going on in the world, I find myself getting a little bit angry and frustrated. You know I've stopped watching the news, but when I was in the hotel room and I had an extra couple of minutes, I flicked across a couple of times and doggone it if there wasn't some stuff that just made me mad about what people are doing and what people are saying. And so I flicked it past that real quick and had to find something where somebody was getting blown up or something. You know, I mean, it was so much more cathartic. The reality of that is that often we will look at this world in a way that maybe God doesn't look at it, and we will look at people in a way that he doesn't look at them. I'm not saying that people aren't wicked. I'm not saying that we shouldn't hate sin. That's not what I'm saying at all. But have we ever stopped to consider the desire that God has to reconcile mankind to himself? It's the reason that Jesus did the redemptive work that he did on the cross. The the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God is is the message of redemption and, and restoration that is offered by God through Jesus. And it's received through repentance, turning from what led mankind to be estranged from God in the first place. Sin. Those who receive the gift of God in Jesus become part of his eternal kingdom, John 1.12. Those who choose to remain in their sin cannot be a part of his kingdom, 1 Corinthians 6.9, Galatians 5.19. And the truth is, there are many people walking around today in ignorance, lacking knowledge of the truth, but because they look like the things we love to despise. They have no understanding of another way. As one of our brothers often says, doing the best they can with what they have. Do they need to be informed of the truth? Do they need to understand the, the lie that was perpetrated on them by the enemy of their soul? Do they need the chance to hear there is another way? That there is a kingdom that exists and it doesn't compete with the kingdom that they are living in because that's a mirage. It's not real. Do they need to hear that there is a kingdom of light when they're in the midst of darkness? 
that there is good, that, that there is joy, that there is hope, that there is freedom, that there is life. If they do, then what other way is there for them to hear about that kingdom than for the citizens of that kingdom to proclaim it? Now notice, I'm not asking you to build anything. I'm not asking you to advance anything. I'm not asking you to take anything by force. That's been done enough. There are many ways that people have been told and been given to do missions, and sadly much of the intense weight of that has missed the simplicity of the truth. The simple proclamation of the good news of the good king who desires to bring those he created and loves back to his kingdom. I think personally, for me, and I hope for you, it, it might be time to return to that simplicity. It's as easy as a conversation. As I thought about this, I was struck by the fact that much of what I've experienced as motivation for being a part of the mission of Jesus to reconcile the lost has been from the perspective of advancing it, from the perspective of expanding it, from the perspective of building it, right? But that's not my responsibility. His kingdom just is. My privilege as a citizen of his kingdom is to simply proclaim the good news of my king's desire for all those estranged. My privilege is to be involved in bringing the truth that reconciliation is possible no matter who you are or what you've done. My privilege is to tell captives to lies, to the mirage, that there's freedom. My king does the rest. Right? So when the disciples went out that day after receiving their mandate from Jesus... And they ran into the first person. Because I've told you this before. The, the next person you stand in front of, that's the person that God desires for you to talk about Jesus. Right? You don't have to go overseas. You can. You don't have to go to another town. You can. But the next person that stands in front of you is the opportunity. But, but can you imagine when the disciples went out that day after receiving their mandate from Jesus and they ran into the first person, what do you think that encounter might have looked like? What do you think they might have proclaimed as the first words out of their mouth regarding the kingdom of God? Do you think they just went and said, the kingdom of God, right? Proclaimed it like that? I don't, I don't think so. What do you think the first good news they would have told would have been? Would it have been what was done for them? Would it, would it have been what God did from the very beginning of time? If we were to begin to respond to the simple mandate to proclaim, the, the one that has been given to all the disciples of Jesus until the end comes, how do you think we might do our mission differently? Could it change the way I think about my part in his plan? 
Could it change the way I see the lost around me? No longer angry sometimes like I am? Could it change the way I use my time, my energy, my resources for the kingdom? I believe that God is at work all around us. I say it all the time to you. And I believe that he is inviting us to join him in his work. And I believe that God gives us the easy job and he does all the heavy lifting. What I would like to ask you to simply consider this week is this question. And, and you may hear this question and say, what does he mean by that? That's why it's worded the way it is. How do I proclaim the kingdom of God? Now you can hear that and say, how do I proclaim the kingdom of God? Or how do I, right? It's tricky that way. But will you consider that question this week? Because as we, as we walk through this series... I believe that God is desiring for there to be greater clarity to that very question for us. Because he hasn't put us here, as I said last week, with all these cars running by and the nations and the, and the neighborhoods and the office. Right? He, hasn't, he hasn't put us here not to give us a living illustration of who we're called to be. He has a plan and he will use us to proclaim his kingdom and the good news. Amen? Let's stand together as we conclude our time this morning. And again, the question is, how do I proclaim the kingdom of God? Now, if you want to add to that a little caveat, you can. How do I proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God? That's perfectly acceptable. You can edit at will. But will you consider that this week? And when you do that, consider how much of your voice you use for all other proclamation. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, that you desire to challenge us sometimes. Not to place on us a burden that we can't bear up under. Not to guilt us into doing things for you. Not to give us a greater sense of duty and obligation. But Lord, just to inspire our hearts and our minds by your truth, your word, reminding us of who we are, what we've been called to, the mandate that we've been given, and what you desire to do in and for the people that surround us every day that have been estranged from you through sin. Lord, as we answer this question, how do I proclaim the kingdom of God? How do I proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God? Lord, would you begin to work on our hearts with that question, driving it deep, Lord, forcing us to answer it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.